0: Can I have you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 15? You know, as we said last time, chapter 15 is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation and becomes the prelude for the final series of events that will complete the wrath of God and bring Jesus Christ back to the earth to establish his kingdom. So we're in the home stretch, you might say. Remember that we have looked at chapter 14, which encompasses a preview of things that come, and now, starting with chapter 16, we're actually going to see these things come to pass, all right? Uh, So far in the book, we have seen the seven seal judgments, followed by the seven trumpet judgments, and now we are about to see the final and most devastating judgments of them all, the seven bowl judgments, and again... As I said last week, if you think the worst was over, think again. The worst is yet to come. Now, last week we got down about verse 3, but let's back up. Start with verse 1, where John said, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, And those who have the victor over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Now, as we said last week, the host of martyrs standing upon the glassy sea are singing two songs. First of all, they're singing the song of Moses, Exodus 15. The song the Israelites sang when they came out of Egypt and at one point looked like their back was against the wall, the Egyptian army behind them. The Red Sea in front of them cried out to God, and God miraculously opened the Red Sea, and the children of Israel walked through it as on dry ground. And when the approaching Egyptian army began to follow, after God's people were safely on the other side, they began to go through the Red Sea, and God closed up the waters giving rise to one of the top ten hits of that time, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. It was on the charts for weeks. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. Catch you a little number. You can check it out in Exodus 15. So they sang that song, but they also sang the song of the Lamb. Now that's recorded here in Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. These are the first and last songs recorded in the Scriptures. And both are songs of God's deliverance of His people by the blood of the Lamb. Now we talked about this last week, so I won't belabor it. But let me just touch on it one more time. When Moses and the Israelites sang the song of Moses, they were looking back to the blood of a Lamb. The blood of a Lamb. This blood, this blood, was placed on the doorpost and lintel of their house, their houses, to keep the Israelites safe when the angel of death passed through the land of Israel, excuse me, the land of Egypt, and when he saw the blood on the doorpost and lintel of a house, he passed over it, did not bring judgment. That's where the the Feast of Passover comes from. But any house that was not protected by the blood of a lamb would be visited by the death of the firstborn. All right. And then in Revelation 15, the martyrs also look back uh, to the blood of the lamb jesus christ Uh, they sang this new song right they uh, praise god for redeeming them of course from the power of sin and hell a deliverance that was accomplished by the blood of the lamb the lamb of god who took away the sin of the world jesus christ but listen they're also singing of how god delivered them through physical death from the wrath and persecution of the antichrist how well by taking them off to the, off the earth and death bringing them to heaven guys let me say this for the believer in Christ death is always more beneficial and blessed than life on the earth that's biblical because Paul the Apostle said in Philippians 1 verse 23 I'm pressed between I'm I am hard pressed between two desires One desire is to stay here and be with you longer and help you to grow and mature and bring others to Christ. But I really have a desire to depart this life to be with Christ, which is far better, far better. Now, Paul, I think we would all agree, was a spirit-filled man. And that is the heart of a spirit-filled man or woman. Uh, No matter how many blessings they have on earth, and Paul had a rough life, I'm not saying he, you know, but no matter how many blessings a, a spirit-filled man or woman has on the earth, their their heart's in heaven, and they long to be in heaven with the Lord. You know, in America, we have so many blessings that Christians in this country often prefer life on the earth to life in heaven. Now, they would never admit that. Maybe they don't even realize they feel that way. I'm convinced of this. It's a reality. A lot of Christians, especially in a country like America, many blessings. A lot of Christians have done the very thing Jesus said not to do. They have laid up for themselves treasures on the earth. And when you have treasures, you've laid up on the earth. As Jesus said, whatever you, wherever you're, whatever you value, there your heart's going to be, right? Um, and, and really, you know, the, the mentality, I think, if they were honest, is, well, I love the Lord. But uh, it's pretty good here on the earth. So i really in no hurry. Uh, he can take his time. Lord, don't worry about it. I got a lot. I'm enjoying life, you know, and, and the, the grandkids, we go out camping and boating. We're having a good time, Lord. You can, don't rush, okay? Of course, they would never really say that openly. But, uh, and, and let me just say this to you. I think it's only people that live in prosperous countries like America, and there's other places, of course, that feel that way um all the christians that live in communist countries or muslim controlled countries or even third world countries they long for the day when they can be with the lord in heaven i mean earth is hard for them Uh, communist countries muslim countries a lot of persecution of christians i just read an article before i came out here the number one most dangerous place for a christian to live on the face of the planet is what what do you think Afghanistan. Nice try. It's close. It's close. Yeah, I think we all understand why. Uh, Afghanistan. The Taliban has taken over and uh, they want to purge the country of all Christianity. That's a Muslim doctrine, by the way. A cardinal doctrine of the Islamic faith is that the whole world has to be Islamicized before Ma- Messiah, before there can be true peace on earth. Well, that's ridiculous. In areas of the world where there's only Muslim, They fight each other because there's different sects of Islam. But uh, Islam divides the whole world into two houses, uh, the house of war and the house of peace, Dara al-Harb and Dara al- al-Assam. And Dara al-Harb is the house of war. All non-Muslims belong to the house of war. Dala, uh, Dara al-harb, uh, al-Islam is the house of peace. And the whole world has to be Islamicized before there could be peace on the earth. So that's where they want to destroy the infidels. All right? Um, but, so this is where we live as Americans. Things are changing, though. Have you noticed? Things are changing where more and more I see myself and other American Christians longing for the day when Jesus returns. And um, when the tribulation period begins and of course it won't begin officially until the rapture happens and every true believer in Jesus Christ is taken off the earth there will be no witness for God because every true believer is gone God never leaves himself self without a witness so immediately at the beginning he sends the two witnesses and I believe they're Moses and Elijah we've talked about that And they have a phenomenal ministry. And they wind up saving 144,000, probably others, but the Bible keys in on 144,000 Jews get saved, 12,000 for each of the 12 tribes. And as I've said before, let me say it again, I envision these 144,000 Jewish evangelists to be like 144,000 Paul the Apostles. Can you imagine? We know they have quite an impact uh, because when the Antichrist starts killing Christians, we read about in chapter 7, there's so many in heaven that one of the elders says to John, who are they and how many do you see? And John says, I don't know who they are, and I can't even tell you how many there are. It's beyond what I could even see. And he says, John says, well, who are these? Well, these are those who are believers, who washed their robes in the blood of Christ and have come out of the great tribulation. By the time people start getting saved as the tribulation period begins, um, I I don't know how bad it's going to get, how quickly it's going to get. You're probably going to have some people that are saved that are not ready to let go of the world completely yet, and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But by the time they enter into the second half of the tribulation period, which contains the great tribulation portion of that's those seven years right the last couple years maybe the great tribulation right um no one alive is going to long for the earth any longer it's going to be so horrifically bad that people are going to be crying out all they can think about i'm convinced is come quickly lord jesus come quickly lord jesus that's going to be their prayer now notice that in the song of the lamb which is what they're singing up there, Uh, there's not one word about the martyr's own achievements. Notice that? Not a single word about the martyrs, uh, their own achievements. They never sing, Oh, Lord, how faithful we have been to you. Oh, what worthy creatures are we. Don't hear that. No, the only pronouns in this song are pronouns which refer to God. And guys, that is what heaven is all about. In heaven, there will only be praise for God, not self. Paul made that very clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not the result of your works, lest any should boast. God doesn't want boasting in heaven. He took salvation completely out of our hands. Uh, he gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. Therefore, the song of the redeemed is going to be a song completely focused on God Almighty. Let's look at the, some of the pronouns. Again, verses 3 and 4. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Uh, Who shall not not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Guys, this is the song of the martyred tribulation saints, who are redeemed, of course, who are saved, and were martyred by the antichrist and his followers and they appear in heaven standing on this glassy sea right before the throne of god worshiping him this is their song the church will sing a a slightly different song Uh, both groups are going to be redeemed tribulation saints of course the church saints our song really comes out of uh, revelation 5 verses 9 to 13 you can check it out and you better memorize it lest you look like one of those rubes in heaven where you're you know like a rube in the big city you know it's like you know um, don't get to heaven and just have your mouth hang open at least know the song so we can all sing it together right uh, that's going to be the song on our hearts as members of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, as we stand before the presence of God as what? True worshipers. John 4, 23 and 24, right? Jesus said the Father is seeking true worshipers. That's what he's been seeking, right? And uh, this is what we're going to do for eternity, is worship the Lord. Uh, we will certainly not feel, both groups, tribulation saints, church saints, we, none of us are going to feel that we have done anything worthy of praise. We will simply marvel in awestruck gratitude and wonder at all that God has done for us. We're going to sing forever about his amazing grace. Now, verse 4 says, who shall not fear you, O Lord? Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Can I just say, there is less fear of God in our country today than at any other time in our nation's history. So God is going to put the fear of God back into the arrogant heart of man. And I will say to you, During the tribulation period, the nations, for the most part, will have given themselves over to the Antichrist. He will be their leader. He will be their God. They will neither fear nor glorify God during their insane demonic unbelief and rebellion during the great tribulation period. But the day is going to come when they will both fear him And be forced to acknowledge him, the Lord Jesus Christ, by bowing the knee before him and confessing he is Lord. He is God. So, during the tribulation period, many will worship Antichrist and his kingdom. They will think he's their true Messiah, come to the earth. Um, They will be witness to, but many will not receive Christ. But the day is coming, as you all know. Today is the day of salvation. If you bow your knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord and accept him as your Savior into your heart, you will be saved. Now, there's coming a day on the day of judgment when people will stand before Jesus Christ. They'll come before him and they will kneel and they will bow and they will confess he is Lord to the glory of God. But it's too late for them. That's why it must be done now. Revelation 15, verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chest girded with golden bands. When John said in verse 5, I looked and behold, read it this way, I looked and behold. Because this statement always expresses, it's always an introduction to something that's new. And listen, dramatic. Who is John the Apostle? Well, he's the Apostle John, a Jew, but not a high priest. And for a Jew to see inside the temple into the Holy of Holies, was truly mind blowing. Because a regular Jew—forget the Gentiles—they but no Jew could ever look inside the holy of Hol- into the holy of holies. There was the first the doors that get into the first compartment, the holy place. Then a thick veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant sat at one time. The only person who could ever enter into that second compartment was the high priest himself, and then only once a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur, and then only after many sacrifices and ceremonial washings. And you know the story. Even after all of this, they would tie a rope around his ankle and bells on the bottom of his robe. and uh, Because when he went in to the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, if something was not right in his own heart, God would strike him dead. Well, you didn't want to run in there. How do you know if he was struck dead? Well, you listen outside for the little bells tinkling. As long as the bells were tinkling, things were fine. The bells stopped tinkling. Uh Uh-oh, not a good sign. Just drag him up by the ankle with the rope. You don't want to go in there, right? So I say all this to say that For John, remember, what's he looking into? The temple in heaven. That's the true temple. The tabernacle and then the temple on earth were only models of their true reality, which was in heaven. Um, But the expression, the temple, uh, the Greek is naos, all right? That is the Greek word used of the temple proper. There was the temple precincts in Jesus' day. Hieron in the Greek. 33, 35 acres of land and different porticos and uh, and, um, patios and uh, areas where rabbis could take students and they could teach their students. And then, of course, in the temple precincts, at one point, after you ascended uh, different stairs to get to different levels, there was four levels, the court of the Gentiles and then the court of the women, court of the Israelites, Jewish men, then the court of the priests, and that's where the actual temple proper, the building of the temple, sat. The na'as, uh, which contained the holy of hol- uh, the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, it seems the expression the tabernacle of the testimony. So the temple seems to be talking about the entire building. But the expression the tabernacle of the testimony seems to be a reference to the portion of the temple that housed the Ark of the Covenant, which would again be the Holy of Holies. It is described as the tabernacle of the testimony. Why? Because of the presence of the tables, or in other words, the tablets of the law, the tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. In the scriptures, they are also referred to as the tablets of the testimony. And where did they reside? They were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, and therefore the Ark of the Covenant was sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony. It was all built around the Word of God. And who is the Word of God in the beginning was? The Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and tabernacle among us, right? Jesus Christ. It all built was built around Jesus. If you can get a little book called The Temple by uh, M. R. DeHaan. I'm not even sure. I, I don't think it's in print anymore. You might be able to get a copy somewhere. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, not The Temple, The Tabernacle. That's right, by M. R. DeHaan. If you're interested in this subject, how every piece of The Tabernacle points to Christ, it's worth a worthwhile study. And I, I, I read it years ago and was fast. I couldn't put it down, all right? All um, right. But when Moses brought the tablets of the stone, tablets of the testimony down from Mount Sinai, they put them in the Ark of the Covenant, right? Uh, Along with Aaron's rod that had budded in the the conflict with Korah and so on, and then a golden pot full of manna. When Solomon dedicated the temple, it makes reference to the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was there But inside was only now the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. What happened to Aaron's rod that had budded, we don't know. What happened to the little pot, golden pot of manna, we don't know. After the Babylonian captivity, when they rebuilt the temple, they didn't even have the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, We don't know where it is. When I say we, I'm including myself, but archaeologists... Uh, many believe it was uh, Jeremiah took it and hid it because he knew the Babylonians were coming. Tradition says that uh, he took it and hid it. Rabbis will tell you today, Orthodox rabbis, we know where it is. It's uh, under the Temple Mount, one of the uh, passageways. There was different rooms and passageways under the temple. We believe we know where it is. And when the time is right, when we are able to rebuild our temple, we'll bring it out. I doubt if they really have it. If they did, believe me, I think they'd be pushing harder to get the temple built, right? But here's the deal. When they rebuilt the temple after the Babylonian captivity, the ark was gone. So what did they put in there? A big block of granite. And that's where the priests would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood. Supposed to be on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, where that was gone. And so they would sprinkle the blood on this... Granite block of stone. Does God know where it is? Probably, but I think we pointed out that in the new temple, um, you're not going to need to tap the Ark of the Covenant. It's just a model. Uh, it represents the throne of God. When you have God himself in the temple uh, in Jerusalem and then out into eternity, millennial kingdom and then eternity, uh, what do you need a model for? You have the reality, right? It's like the um, the um, sacrifices and feasts, they all pointed to Christ. And Paul makes it a point to say they were shadows. Christ is the substance. Christ has come. We have the reality. What do we need to hang out in the shadows anymore for? Th- th- those just look forward to Christ and so on. But there are Christians who want to hang on to all that. Is if It makes us more of a Christian to have our Jewish roots constantly before us. Um, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to destroy the law, but to what? what? Fulfill. It's all fulfilled in Christ. That's a different teaching. We'll get to that eventually someday. Um, so this, this idea, of verse 5, John said, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And so he's he's combining all of this, um, and it's, again, all built around the word, the testimony of God, Jesus Christ, right? Now, the angels are wearing um, pure bright linen, right? Pure bright linen. Well, of course, that just speaks of um, holiness. But it's interesting that it's mentioned that they're wearing linen. You you realize that when God established the priesthood, he made it very clear they were not to make the, the clothes of the priests out of wool. They were only to use linen. Why is that? Because wool causes perspiration, linen breathes. All right? What was the idea behind that? God didn't want His God didn't want His priests to serve Him sweating, like it was a labor, like they were laboring. It was to be done in the power of the Spirit. Therefore, the linen it was a fabric that allowed uh, their bodies to, to breathe and be cool. Right? Remember what Jeremiah? You know, he, Jeremiah was a great guy. I look forward to meeting him someday. Um, But he had a little thing that he used to, he had a rough ministry called the weeping prophet, prophesied 46 years to a wayward nation. Nobody ever repented. Nobody ever got saved under his ministry. Uh, That's a tough ministry, right? So Jeremiah had a little phrase he used to like to throw around, the burden of the Lord. It became one of those famous little phrases that, you know, we adopt little phrases that become almost our signature motto or phrase. Right? So Jeremiah was always, oh, the burden of the Lord. Oh, the burden of the Lord, right? And one day God stopped him and said, Jeremiah, you know, you're using an expression that I hate. If you don't knock it off, I'm never going to talk to you again. And if you're a prophet, that's a big deal. You're going around saying everybody, the burden of the Lord, the burden of the Lord are these. And God says Jeremiah, Look, if you're carrying a burden around, it's not my burden; it's yours. I don't give burdens, right? Uh, you know, you know, my yoke is easy. Jesus said, "My burden is what? Is light." The idea is that God God bore our burden. Jesus bore the cross. Jesus bore our burdens, our sins, right? All we have to do is proclaim the goodness of God in the power of the Spirit. Look, I'm not saying ministry is easy. I'm not saying that we, you know, we never work to the point of exhaustion almost. I'm just saying, though, this constant, I'm burdened, I'm burdened, you know, and you're perspiring and you're just so, oh, just the strain, the stress, you know, it's like, look, maybe you're doing ministry in the energy of your flesh instead of in the power of the spirit. I'm just saying, I don't know. But you know what? Seek the Lord. Maybe it's more a work of the flesh than it is a work of the Spirit, okay? So these angels are wearing this pure, I imagine, pure, white, bright linen. speaks of holiness, right? And they're wearing these golden bands around their chest. What is that? Well, what is gold the metal of? Kings, right? When the wise men brought the three gifts to baby Jesus, they brought gold, spoke of his kingship. They brought frankincense, spoke of his priesthood. They brought myrrh, which spoke of the sacrifice he would make for the to, to uh, forgive us our sins, right? Gold in scripture is a kingly metal. And these angels are wearing this kind of these bands of gold, I think, which identifies them as being servants these may be a special group of angels but they're wearing a uniform that represents the fact that they are serving the king of glory gold being a medal of of kingship and so they are in divine service to the king of glory god almighty verse seven then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, as we said last week, the seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God refers to shallow saucers, not deep bowls. Uh, Bowls were part of the temple paraphernalia uh, and were associated with sacrifice, Exodus 27 verse 3 and chapter 38 verse 3, you can check that out. Uh, Someone has said, those who refuse to drink the cup of salvation, that's a phrase that comes out of Psalm uh, 116, verse 13. Those who refuse to drink the cup of salvation, listen, will be destroyed by the bowls of wrath. So, you know. Now, because God lives forever and ever, he has the power to put an end to sin. So that it cannot exist ever again in his presence. He's doing that. Uh, People have pointed out, scholars have pointed out, that our salvation is taking place, um, well, three dimensions, but that's not really accurate. Uh, It's taking place uh, in past, present, and future all at the same time, basically. What do you mean? Well, You could find scriptures to back this up. I've got them written down somewhere. I didn't pull them for tonight, but I've actually pulled the scriptures. We have been, past tense, we have been saved from the penalty of sin, right? We're not going to hell because of what Jesus did. Present tense, we are being saved from the power of sin. That's what sanctification is all about. We are being conformed more and more every day to the image of Christ, right? And we will be saved, future tense, from the presence of sin, saved from the penalty of sin, being saved from the power of sin, and we will be someday saved from the presence of sin. Well, you can read Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 to 8, which tells us that in the new heavens and earth, the new Jerusalem, nothing that is ever, that, that, will, that is defiled, sinful, wicked, will ever be allowed to be there it will be a completely pure untainted uncontaminated environment we live in a world that's been tainted by sin right i mean in the beginning god every day of creation it's good it's good it's good God god's always good the last day kind of steps back it looks at the whole canvas of creation and says it's all good well it was all good when god finished creating the universe and the world and all and mankind But then, Genesis 3, Satan took the form of a serpent, beguiled Eve. She ate the forbidden fruit, gave to Adam, and he ate, and the human race fell. And when they fell, when the human race fell, Paul said in Romans 8, the whole creation was marred. It had an effect on the entire creation, the whole universe. So, God isn't going to just fix humanity by redeeming us. Um, Again, Romans 8. Uh, the whole creation, personifying the creation, is groaning for the day when it too can be released from the bondage of corruption and brought into the liberty of the children of God. The whole creation is waiting for the day when God's going to recreate it. Perfect, pure, untainted by sin. I mean, I don't know what an environment, I'm talking about a, un- a universe, that has never been tainted by sin, what what that's going to even look like. I mean, in the Garden of Eden, we know that before the fall, things were different. What do I mean? Well, Adam and Eve, of course, were never intended to die, number one. But apparently animals talked. I mean, you think about that. The serpent starts talking to Eve, and she doesn't scream and say, ah, talking serpent, and run away. She engages the thing. It's like Dr. Doodle, you know, every, I guess, talking to animals. It's just no big deal, right? I don't know what it's going to be like in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. As I have said, it could very well be a whole new dimensionality. Who knows? I know one thing. It's going to be awesome. More than we could even explain it. If we could see it, Paul got a peek of heavens. Don't even ask me to describe it. Um, I'll only do it in I'll only violate Um, I can't express it in words right okay so verse 8 the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed now John tells us that the smoke filled the temple this is in heaven now making it impossible for anyone to enter it until the seven plagues were poured out on the earth. It reminds me of two other passages, the first one when the tabernacle was dedicated to God under Moses and the second when the temple was dedicated to God under Solomon. Turn to Exodus 40. And let's just read verses 34 and 5. Uh, they're dedicating the tabernacle to the Lord, right? Then the cloud covered the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, the Shekinah glory, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All right, turn over to 2 Chronicles 5. That was the dedication of the tabernacle. 2 Chronicles 5, we see the dedication of the temple. Under Solomon, Second, Second Chronicles 5, verses 13 and 14, which reads, Indeed it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with tr- the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good and his mercy endures forever, that the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not continue ministering. I would imagine what it could be saying is, couldn't continue ministering standing, they had to drop to their knees and put their faces on the ground. That the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. Which means if we want God's presence to fill our lives, our homes, our uh, churches, we must be a people of praise. But that means we can't stand erect in his presence with pride over our accomplishments. We must be on our knees in humble reverence of his greatness and power. That's the thing that is lacking, I think, in the church of Jesus Christ today um, more than anything else. I'm talking about Christians now. Where Christians do not seem to have a reverence for God anymore. Now, again, they would deny that. And I'm not saying every Christian's the same as the next. We just see a lot of churchgoers who claim to be Christians, who are lacking this reverence for a holy God. I've told you the story of this TV evangelist. He was talking about how he was shaving one morning, and Jesus walked into his bathroom, and he began to engage the Lord in this conversation. And I thought, well, right there, I know you're full of it. You're full of baloney. If Jesus Christ actually walked into your bathroom when you were shaving one morning, You would have smashed your head on the porcelain bowl because you would have hit the ground so hard. I'm telling you, right? There's just a lack of reverence. The first time I went to Israel, this was the first couple times, actually, but that was back in the mid-'90s, and back then, you could still visit Bethlehem. It was under uh, Arab control, uh, Palestinian control, uh, but... You could still go there. Now it's too dangerous. But when we were allowed to go into Bethlehem, they would take you to the Church of the Nativity. Now the Church of the Nativity is the place where they believe Jesus was born and placed in a manger. If you go down to the bottom of the church, the basement, there's a grotto. And on the floor, there's a golden star. I guess X marks the spot. This is it. This is where Jesus was born, right? I don't even I don't even like to even visit these churches because it's just all a tourist trap, you know. Um, but one thing I did notice now it's a kind of a big ornate cathedral church, right? And they had a regular large door that. You could have entered into, but that was closed. It was locked. So to get into the church, you had to actually uh, walk through just like a, an opening. Uh, it had like, a, like just a real simple door that would basically some boards that you would swing shut. I thought it was odd. You're entering into this beautiful cathedral that has so much uh, significance. Birth of Christ right here, right? And yet the door was only, I don't know, about maybe three or four foot wide, but about four and a half foot high, which meant you had to actually stoop down to walk through it. Initially, I just thought that was really odd, but then I started thinking about it. And I thought, yeah, and I, I, I bet I know why they, they did this. Because this is a holy place. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that the church really marks the spot where Jesus was born. Let's put that aside for a minute. But to these people, this was the very church that was built over the very spot where Jesus was placed in the manger the night he was born, right? And what they were communicating to everyone who would enter this church, this is a holy place. You don't walk into this church with your, held, your head held high and your shoulders back uh, tall and erect like you own the joint. You come into this place, you better bow down low because you're coming into a holy place that has a quite a bit of significance. And I thought, you know what? I don't believe the church marks the spot where Jesus was born. They believe it does. And they had enough reverence for that idea that they wanted people to enter their church bowed down low, humble, right? Would to God we had more Christians that entered into church that way? Maybe not literally, but in their heart. When they come into church, they come as if they're coming into a very holy place, a place where God dwells. Now, I know he dwells. His presence fills the universe. But why can't we make this a place where, you know, Lord, this is a place where your people gather. You're you're everywhere. But this is a place where your people gather, and I think especially a place where we ought to enter with reverence, humility, holiness, right? I tell you what, I believe God would do a lot more through his people if we had the right heart about our relationship with him. than than many Christians have who act like God's their buddy. You know? If Jesus were to walk into their house, I'd invite him to sit down, have a beer, and watch the game. I'm serious. And that, that to me, is a tragedy. It tells us where we are uh, as a nation, right? But God inhabits the praises of his people. You know, praise is a manifestation of faith. And faith is the antithesis of fear. So faith and fear are mutually exclusive. But one or the other is going to dominate our hearts. Let it be faith and not fear. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. The devil wants to make us afraid. And that goes for every area of our life. You can fill in the blanks. Now, let's put COVID at the top of the list. How do I know if I'm walking in faith? I'll tell you how you know. Because praise will be on your lips. It's a manifestation of faith. Well, chapter 16. And so once again, as we come to chapter 16, we come to the last and greatest judgments of God that he will pour out upon this rebellious, Christ-rejecting world. The bowl judgments, guys, are God's super judgments. Are you ready for this? I guess we could call them his super bowl judgments. All right, I had to say it. Don't throw anything, but... (laughs) As we just said, these are not bowls in the sense that you would ordinarily think of a bowl like a deep mixing bowl. No. The Greek is actually a shallow saucer. The imagery is not that of a stream being poured out that you would ordinarily think of. um, Let me say it again. The, The imagery is not that of a stream being poured out gradually like you would pour liquid out of a pitcher kind of a thing. Um, But that of the whole contents of each of these shallow saucers being dumped out quickly. You can, boom, right? Not pour, 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 but boosh, whoosh, okay? That's the idea. In other words, these judgments won't be long and protracted. They will be quick, rapid-fire judgments. As we've already pointed out numerous times, without mercy, so there's no need to lengthen them out to give people time to repent. These last seven plagues come one after another in just a few months, I I believe, a few months' time. They happen right before the Battle of Armageddon, which happens right before the return of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. The reason they come in such rapid-fire succession is because, again, we've said this before, let me say it again, Uh, The reason they come in such rapid-fire succession is because by this point, the day of salvation is over. The day of salvation is over. No one left is going to be saved that hasn't already been saved. They have all heard the gospel message many times over. I'm talking about those who at this point are still unsaved. It's no fault of God. They have heard the gospel, and I'm thinking we're about maybe five years into the tribulation. Maybe we got a couple years, maybe 18 months, right? But we're right at the end here. We're in the great tribulation portion of the seven years. By this time, this group cannot plead ignorance. I mean, they've heard the gospel from the two witnesses. They've heard the gospel from the 144,000 that the two witnesses converted, Jewish evangelists. They've heard it from the probably the millions of converts, 144,000 converted to Christ. They even heard it, chapter 14, God sends an angel that flies through the heavens to declare the everlasting gospel. But every time the gospel has been preached, they've rejected it. So there is no reason at this point to delay these final judgments to give people more time to repent. That's it. The day of grace is over for them. The day of salvation has come to an end. It reminds me of what the writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 7. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. That, that's where we are at the tribulation period at this point. Exactly what the writer to the Hebrews was talking about. So verse 1, John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Can I just say this? People today will tolerate, they will tolerate talk about God as long as it's limited to his love and his mercy. But they can't understand and therefore will not tolerate a God who judges sin. A God who has is going to pour out his wrath against sin. Most people today don't take sin seriously. I mean, think about that, right? I mean, I don't have to press that home to your heart. You know it. Most people in our culture do not take sin seriously. If they even believe, there is such a thing as sin. And because of it, they have a concept of God, if they even believe in God. Their concept is that sin is no big deal to God either. That's kind of how they reason. They don't take it seriously, and therefore they believe God doesn't take it seriously either. They believe that he is all love, all kindness, all mercy, And as such, he would, you know, never, never send anyone to hell unless they were the worst sinners in the world, mass murderers, child rapists, and of course, MAGA hat wearing Trump supporters. Quite a category to be lumped into. But their concept of Jesus is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Look upon this little child. It's the classic Sunday school concept of Jesus. A Jesus that walked the shores of the Sea of Galilee patted the little children on the head, and gently told them to turn the other cheek to their enemies. A Jesus who was so kind, so loving. He didn't even fight against those who were crucifying him. As a lamb went, was before its shears is is dumb or mute. He opened not his mouth, because he was meek and mild, you know. Um, he even forgave those from the cross that put him there. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That is the main concept that people have. Unbelievers, they even believe in Jesus. That's pretty much the concept they have of him. And yet we read in Revelation 6, why don't you turn to it? We read in Revelation 6, starting with verse 12. I looked, John said, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Verse 14, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who is able to stand? Wait a minute! Save us from the wrath of the lamb? Those don't even go together. The wrath of the lamb—I mean, lambs are meek and gentle and 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 sweet. I've never seen an attack lamb. Is my point. I mean, if you want to get an animal to protect your family, what do you get? You got a Doberman, pit bull, Rottweiler. You don't get a lamb. Although I did come out of the wedding reception, Christian uh, wedding I did, walking through the parking lot, and I saw a car which I assume was owned by a Christian. On the license plate, he just had a vanity plate. that said Lambo. (laughs) Obviously taken from Rambo. So Rambo, tough guy. I'm Lambo. How about one more? How about Dumbo? (laughs) Because if you think... You're going to go up against the enemy, Satan, the wolf. You're going to take him on because you're a Lambo. You're a Dumbo. The lambs never fought with the wolves. They let the shepherd take it. And let the shepherd protect him. Just stay close to Jesus. And uh, when the enemy comes knocking, just say, Lord, will you open the door? I, I You know, I'm I'm not going to battle against the devil because... I'm no match for the devil, but my Savior, he has bound the strong man at Calvary's cross, right? And so on. But, but getting back to this idea of the wrath of the Lamb, again, those two don't even go together in the minds of most of the people in modern culture whose concept of Jesus was how he submitted to those who crucified him. Again, he didn't fight Um, even forgave those uh, as he hung on the cross that put him there. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so because of it, they don't believe that their Jesus would ever judge sin or send people to hell. Maybe you've heard this over the years. I have. Well, you talk about hell and coming judgment. And some people will say to you, well, my Jesus would never send people to hell. You want to tell them, you're right. You are absolutely right. Your Jesus wouldn't. You know why? Because he's make-believe. You made him up. But the Jesus of the Bible, he is going to punish sin. What they don't understand is that Jesus came the first time as a lamb to save his enemies. He's going to come again as a lion to destroy his enemies before he establishes the kingdom. And you know, think about this. In the Garden of Eden, the devil... Beguiled Eve, and she ate the forbidden fruit, gave to Adam, and he ate. I'm not sure if they understood all the ramifications. God had given them the earth to tend it and watch over it, right? They had dominion. But when they ate the forbidden fruit, when they disobeyed God and obeyed Satan, something really incredible happened. Man fell, and when he fell, he became the slave of of satan satan became man's new master and the world's new owner now the devil is a usurper he doesn't really he has no right to the earth but he took it over fair and square the people god gave it to they willingly gave it over to the devil well he lied to them yeah doesn't matter because god told them what to do and they didn't listen they oh they listened to the devil right So Jesus had to come and go to Calvary's cross, shed his blood to redeem the world. Why? He doesn't have enough worlds? The earth is basically a blue marble spinning in the cosmos. God doesn't have enough worlds? He needed another world? No. The parable of the field? The man was walking through a field, stumbled across a treasure, and for the joy thereof, went out and sold all he had bought the what? The treasure? No, the field. He needed to buy the field because there was a treasure in it that he really wanted. The field? Dirt? Grass? No. There was a treasure in the field that he wanted. Jesus didn't need another world. He made all the worlds with the word of his power, but there was a treasure here on this fallen planet. And that's what he was really after. That's why he came down and he died and he redeemed this planet and everyone on it back to him. He is, Now, that was the down payment. He has bought and paid for the earth. It's really his now. He's coming back to take ownership of what he has bought and purchased, what he has uh, bought with his own blood, purchased, right? The good news is he's inviting everybody in the world to come live with him in his kingdom. <laughs> I'm going to... It's, you talk about a fixer-upper. The Lord is saying, "You know what? When I come back, I'm going to fix up this world." Um, there's a Greek world in in the regeneration. I think it is. I think the world the word actually in the Greek means before uh, um, uh, some to the effect of before Genesis or some before the fall is the idea. That the Lord is going to remake the world before how it was before the fall. A paradise, right? And he's inviting everyone to come live with him in the world he bought and paid for. Now you have rebels who don't want to live in Jesus' world. They want to take his world and do with it as they please, right? That's why he has the right and the authority when he comes back to destroy them. You don't want to live in my world under my rulership. I love you. I gave my life for you. I want to be your king. You don't want that. But you want to live in my world, but you don't want me to rule over your life. Well, that doesn't work that way. And so those that refuse to bow the knee to Christ and receive him as their savior and king, when he comes back, he is going to purge the earth of these rebels oh that's not fair why isn't it fair the the earth belongs to him why why is it not you know why is it not fair that you want to live on god's world but you don't want to honor him you don't want to submit to his rule obey his commandments it doesn't work that way but you're invited to be a member of the kingdom Anybody can be a member. But you have to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. What's in there? Okay. Um, I have in my notes that as these judgments, these seven bold judgments are about to be poured out. Listen, and we'll pick this up next week, God willing. Each of these bold judgments, in each of these bold judgments, God is targeting something specifically they're not just random capricious things he's targeting something specifically with each of these bold judgments and we'll look at that next time father we thank you for your word we thank you for our savior who loved us so much that he died in our place and is coming back to take possession of a world he has bought and paid for to make it more beautiful than we could ever imagine, a paradise from one end to the other. And he's inviting the people of this world to become his subjects as he is going to be the king of a whole new kingdom. And, Lord, we pray that for our loved ones especially who don't know you, that you would touch their hearts. And, Lord, bring them into your kingdom. Lord, do what you have to do to break them, that they would fall to their knees in broken surrender and repentance. And so, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.